page 58 in the first Timothy manual and then first Timothy chapter four. The goal tonight is to cover the first nine verses in chapter four. So we'll see, we'll see how we go. Let me go ahead and read the verses and then we'll go back and start digging through them a little bit. First Timothy four verse one. Now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed, but reject and profane and old wives' fables. Exercise yourself toward godliness, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. But in chapter 4, Paul returns to really this area of false teaching, Uh, except now, instead of correcting something that's going on presently, he's going to start talking about the coming apostasy and what, what's going to happen here as he expresses in the latter times, some of which I think, you know, we're living in, we've, we're going to, we've seen some of these things in our day. Let's work our way through point number one in verse one, he's going to say, but the spirit explicitly says that in the latter times. And so Paul warned Timothy of coming false teaching and its erosive effects. The, the word, but in the NSB, I think it's, it's translated now in the new King James in this passage exposes a stark contrast between the glory of God's mystery, which we just looked at in first Timothy three, 15 through 16. And then the sad departure from the faith that the Holy spirit vigilantly predicted. And so you've got this this contrast and that connecting word right there at the beginning of verse one between the mystery of godliness and then the basically the outworking of Satan uh, in verse one through these false teachers. And Paul predicted that in the latter days of the church age, erroneous teaching would cause some believers to depart from the faith. Remember again, Paul had called out certain false teachers in chapter one, but that was specific to the church at Ephesus where, where Timothy was here. He provides much more detail on future false teachers and what they would be teaching. So the spirit of God provided or related this information to Paul in the form of direct revelation. And then he recorded it for us. The present tense indicative mood of the Greek verb translated says indicates that this revelation was a persistent theme. This was undoubtedly the motivation behind Paul's frequent warnings against heresy and false teachers. And again, it indicates the fact that it's a present tense. The spirit says indicates that the importance of sound doctrine, sound teaching, and it's important to God. So it shouldn't be important to us. It's kind of the idea that it's, it's constantly on his mind. One of the things you'll see is Paul was always concerned about false teaching. Go back with me to Acts chapter 20. We'll look at a couple of these cross-reference verses. But if you recall in Acts 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He actually is, is on his way back to Jerusalem. He calls the Ephesian elders to himself to have 
what he thinks may be the last conversation he's ever going to have with them. And notice what he says in verse 29. This is Acts 20, verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's talking about false teachers. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so do you think false teaching and false doctrine was important to the Apostle Paul? Well, clearly it was. And he also recognizes that false teaching can come from without the church and it can also rise up from within the church. And so you've got as a shepherd, as as the qualified elders that Paul had mentioned in 1 Timothy 3, that's one of their primary roles is to be on the lookout for false teaching and to put it to bed as soon as they, they realize it. And so Paul here is predicting what some of this false teaching is going to look like so that future leaders of the church will be able to recognize it and, and possibly knock it down. Again, the false teachers Paul had instructed Timothy about in chapter one were misapplying the law. And he reminding reminded him of two teachers he had excommunicated from the church. If you remember the story of Alexander and Hymenaeus that we looked at in verses 18 through 20 of chapter one. Point number two, the Greek phrase fall away is in the future tense indicative mood, showing that this will certainly happen. That's really sad because some will fall away or depart from the faith. And remember again, the faith speaks of the established orthodox doctrine of the church, you know, what we find in the word of God. And because it's an indicative mood, future tense indicative mood means it's guaranteed. It's going to happen. It's not might, it might happen, but it will happen. This is what's going to happen when this false teaching, false teaching is taught. People are going to buy into it. In fact, the phrase fall away literally means to remove oneself from. And, and what this represents is, is a deliberate departure from the faith that one previously embraced and professed. And so somebody who had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who had believed the doctrine they were being teaching, uh, being taught by the apostles and then those coming after them, make a, a stark decision, a deliberate departure from that realm of truth to believe one of these false teachings that he's talking about. And, and the point is, it's an intentional choice. It's somebody that's choosing to remove themselves from God's word and choosing something else over sound doctrine. It could be something innocuous. It could be a certain type of music. You know, people will choose music over doctrine. They'll, they'll say, well, this church isn't too, you know, it isn't rock band enough. So I'm going to find somewhere that's got more lively music and they'll leave a church that's teaching sound doctrine to go to a church that's not teaching sound doctrine but has a good worship band or a good rock band, you know, depending on what they're looking for or vice versa. People uh, will leave a church because they've got a certain instrument. Let's say the drums. They'll leave a church that's got sound doctrine, but maybe have drums in their worship to go to a church that doesn't have sound doctrine, but doesn't contain drums and then the drums in their worship. And so they make these decisions that are, that are unbiblical. They'll, they'll just choose to depart from sound doctrine over silly things. It could be personality. It could be programs for the kids. It could be just convenience. Hey, this church is closer. It's five minutes away and they'll choose to start attending a church that, that maybe doesn't have sound doctrine because of one of these issues. Clearly Paul is talking about a, a false teaching issue here and they're choosing that they're departing from 
orthodox teaching, but these are some practical ways that people still do things like this today. Letter B, it's important to note uh, that the word some, not all, will depart from the faith. We are not to fear that in the end times, everyone will depart from the faith. That's not what it's saying. In fact, if you and your congregation will heed Paul's warning in this book, you will be amply protected against departing from the faith. And you know, that's the whole reason, if you remember reading the book of Jude ever, that the whole reason that Jude was written, he wrote it with the express purpose of contending for the faith, realizing that this is a very common thing that people people get caught up into is not contending for the faith, maybe letting their guard down, maybe buying into sound doctrine because they're not mentally attentive to to what is sound doctrine and what's false doctrine. And and really what what we're trying to do is it doesn't you don't have to have a seminary degree to recognize that. What you're trying to do is just learn to take what somebody's teaching and then just compare it to the word of God. And if it doesn't match up, you reject that person's teaching and you accept the word of God. You never you never on the basis of personality or persuasion or whatever the, the amount of letters next to their name, you never just accept what somebody says about the word of God. You, you go back to the word of God and try to compare it scripture with what they're saying and see if it lines up. And you always go with scripture. Now, the end of verse one, he says that some will depart from the faith and, and some will do that by giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And this describes how some Christians will fall away from the faith. There will be a a demonic component to this predicted departure from the faith. The phrase translated paying attention to or giving heed in the New King James, it's used four times in the book of 1 Timothy. It's a nautical term, uh, it's a, a shipping term, and it means to sail towards. In other words, leaving the faith is the process, is a process that begins with setting one's course toward falsehood. And so these believers in some ways are, are going to be captivated. You can say, you know, they're paying attention to, or they're, they're giving heed, they're, they're being captivated by certain things. It could be a certain cause that they're captivated to. It could be a certain method that they're captivated to. But the point is, is that there's not sound doctrine underlying this cause or method. It's just the cause or the method. They're being captivated maybe by personality, maybe by hearing things that are important to them, but maybe a, a Bible teacher is working that important topic, whatever that is to us into every message. And like, I just like this guy better, even though for the most part, they're not preaching sound doctrine and slowly the guard goes down. There's going to be something in these doctrines that are deceitful, that aren't completely truthful, that, that are captivating, that will draw you in um, or draw us in if we're not careful in heeding sound doctrine. In fact, first John four, one says, beloved, Speaking to believers, John writing there, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. What are these doctrines of demons? These are expanded on in the next three verses, verses three to five. But among other things, they have to do with basic life issues like marriage and food. So we'll kind of look at this a little bit more closely as we go forward in verses three through five. Verse two, the text says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So what do we need to know about these false teachers? Well, the phrase by means of shows that these teachers will be tools in the hands of deceiving spirits. Sadly, believers can be manipulated to further Satan's agenda. 
This happened to Peter, Ananias and Sapphira, likely Simon in Acts. It's definitely a possibility. And so let's go and look at a couple of those examples. Let's look at Peter, Matthew 16, 21 through 23. Matthew 16, 21 through 23. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. And Jesus called it right what it was. He was saying, you are being used as a tool of Satan to distract me from my agenda of going to the cross. And so he doesn't even say, Hey, Peter, you're acting carnal. He says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. What's really ironic is Peter had been used by God, the father, just in the, in the passage above that. In fact, go back up to verse 16, Matthew 16, 16, Simon, Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In one instance, or at least within a few hours of one another, Peter was first in the class and then he went to wearing the dunce cap. And it all had to do with basically walking according to God's plan and agenda. In that one instance, he recognizes Jesus's identity and he declares it being used by the father there to do that. And then later on, he doesn't like the fact that Jesus is going to be leaving away. And he's like, no, 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 Lord, don't let that happen. And he's being used by, by Satan to accomplish his agenda. Look at Acts chapter five, verse three. He says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of land for yourself? So again, we can see that believers even can be manipulated by Satan to further their agenda. Now, believers cannot be indwelt by Satan, cannot be possessed by demons. That's that's an impossibility because believers are indwelt by the Spirit of God. But Satan can manipulate and influence believers. How does he do that? Well, he does that through the sin nature. And that's how that influence comes in. We look at a couple examples of those. The second thing we see about these false teachers is that they are going to be liars. They're going to be hypocritical. The, the word translated hypocrisy can also be translated flattery or evil deception. So hypocritical liars pretend to be something they are not in order to communicate falsehood. Deceiving spirits use the hypocrisy of these liars to propagate their false doctrine. In other words, they tell people what they want to hear in order to manipulate a response. They're not sincere. They're, they're, double face, they're two faced they're like an actor. That's the deal. And this and Satan and these demons um, are going to use people who are walking according to the flesh uh, to do these things. In fact, we learn a little bit more about them that they're seared in their conscience as with the branding iron. And what that tells us that the is that the conscience of these hypocritical liars are described as being seared. That's a problem because the conscience is a mechanism. God-given mechanism for distinguishing right and wrong given by God to every human being. And so for a believer to be seared in their conscience means they have ignored its warnings for so long 
that they have become completely hardened to the recognition of sin. And in this state, they are now what we would call carnal, but not only carnal, but consistently carnal, not and, and this doesn't just have to be licentious outbursts. This is not the external carnality that we typically think of. When we, th- we say, oh, that person's carnal. We're thinking of murder, adultery, drugs, alcohol. We're thinking about the, the big, in our thinking, the big sins. Although God doesn't think that way. We often do. We're not talking about that just by itself. We're talking about being carnal in thinking. We're talking about approaching even church issues with carnality or worldly thinking this is it could uh, this carnality this having our conscience seared with the hot iron could even apply to church issues that's what paul said back in acts 20 you've got false teachers that can come in from without you've got false teachers that can rise up from within and these false teachers are going to be carnal many of them are going to have a seared conscience and so it could just be that their carnality is going to manifest itself in worldly thinking even with church things. And so one of the things we have to appreciate about a conscience is it's designed as one mechanism to keep you in fellowship with the Lord. When your conscience triggers and says, Ooh, I, what I said there was wrong. What I did there was wrong. What I thought there was wrong. What I felt there was wrong. It gives us that immediate feedback so that we will take that sin and go and confess it to God the Father. Remember, confession is designed to restore us to fellowship. Sin does not kick us out of the family of God, but it does disrupt our fellowship with God. The conscience is designed to put you on notice that you've sinned and and you want to be restored to fellowship with God. And you do that through confession of sin, saying the same thing about it that the Lord does. The problem with a seared conscience is that the conscience has been ignored as a mechanism. Maybe your conscience is saying, I did, this was wrong. I said this wrong. I did this wrong. Uh, I felt this wrong. I thought this wrong. And then by ignoring that conscience, your conscience becomes less and less sensitive. And then moral decay sets in, then theology changes, then doctrine changes. See, that's kind of how that works. You begin to rethink your theology. You don't stand as firmly to the word of God because now you're living in sin. You don't see maybe certain sins as bad. And you begin to uh, just take this slippery slope into moral decay. One of the good things about being a believer is you not only have a conscience, you also have the Holy Spirit. So just as you should never damage your conscience, you should never grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that you can do both of those through sin. And that's what we have recorded there with those cross-reference verses. One of the things about your conscience we've got to understand is it's not always accurate. Sometimes people have an overactive conscience. They think they're sinning, not because they're truly sinning, but because they've been exposed to maybe some false legalistic teaching and they have adopted that teaching and it's framed their conscience. They need to continue to learn the word of God so that they can be free. So their conscience can be a little bit more accurate in terms of assessing when they do something right, when they do something wrong. The fact that the conscience is mentioned here and not the spirit shows that these teachers must have already grieved the Holy Spirit. They were clearly already in a bad state. And now we want to look at their false teaching. And you see some of this and you think, why would anybody buy into this? Why would anybody think this is appealing or why would they get captivated with this teaching? But they do. And and quite frankly, they have. People have. Verse 3, we see that the hypocrisy of these teachers will be a form of asceticism. 
What do we mean by that? Well, it's an abstinence from legitimate things. You know, a key mark of false teachers is their emphasis on externals above an internal and true response to the Lord. Verse 3, notice what they are. They manifest themselves to forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who receive and know the truth. What they do is they set up a host of measurables and observable standards. And they set these up arbitrarily, oftentimes, to to either prove to you how spiritual they are or for you to prove to everybody else how spiritual you are. And, you know, it's very appealing to people. Uh, In fact, when we look at the forbidding of marriage, to forbid one of God's most longstanding institutions for humanity is, is forbidding marriage. These teachers will communicate that marriage is wrong. Genesis 2.18 says, It is not good for the man to be alone. God ordained marriage, but these false teachers will contradict the word of God. They're going to communicate something to the effect that it's more spiritual to be unmarried. And can you think of anybody that does that? Well, the Catholic Church does that. Some of Buddhism does that. Some of Hinduism does that. They elevate, when you want to elevate to a certain spiritual elite within their religion, this is what is prescribed. You you don't marry, right? You're not allowed to marry. You're, you're to basically abstain from a legitimate thing that God has said is legitimate. And then we'll know that you're spiritual. We can see it externally. That's immeasurable. And, and Paul flat out calls this a doctrine of demons. This is not a spiritual measuring stick. In fact, what did we learn about godliness in chapter 3, verse 16? It's a mystery. It, it's something that had not been revealed until now. And godliness is God reproducing his life in a person's body, not forbidding to marry. You see the, the stark contrast there. One, oh my goodness, he's, he's a priest. He's not married. He's so holy. He's celibate or she's a nun or he's a monk. And, you know, and, and this is kind of what religion will do to you. It'll just make you start to think that, whoa, whoa, they are the holy people. They're abstaining from all these things. And Paul flat out says it's a doctrine of demons. It's, it's not even worth being considered or thinking highly of from our perspective. Another area is to abstain from foods. So to abstain from food, show that these false teachers will get into people's personal lives, not allowing them to freely eat certain foods. And Colossians, Paul said that while this type of religious self-denial may look good on the outside, it has no spiritual value. In fact, go to Colossians chapter two, verses 20 through 23. It says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why is though living in the world? Do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, uh, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. In other words, they look good. This is why it's attractive. This is why people are captivated by these things. They look good. They have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, they don't make you more spiritual. And this is what false teachers will teach. It's kind of a, in direct contrast to the mystery of godliness, they're giving you 
They're going to give you something that's going to that that they will say will make you more godly, and they're not biblical. They're doctrines of demons. This particular abstaining from foods was probably had Jewish origins because there was a restriction on food for the Jews, but it wasn't to make them spiritual; it's to set them apart as a nation far above any other nation on earth. There was another reason for it. It wasn't to make them more spiritual by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, do you know there's still groups today that are teaching people to abstain from foods, that there's certain foods that we should stay away from if we want to be more spiritual. And being spiritual has nothing to do with what goes into the mouth, right? It's what comes out of the heart. It's, It's who or what you are trusting in to live the Christian life. That's where spirituality comes from. In fact, he goes on to say, God is created to be gratefully shared in both of these things who believe and know the truth. So God created food and marriage for the enjoyment of his children. And so while the unbelieving world enjoys food and marriage as well, they cannot enjoy them to the extent that believers who know and believe the truth do. Full enjoyment, as we've said in the book of Ecclesiastes, of anything in this life is only found when we're in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can fully enjoy even marriage, and even food. So abstaining from food and marriage does not make a believer more holy as false teachers promote. In fact, no external action does. Spirituality always begins internally. You've got lots of different religions and denominations that push this externality of spirituality. You'll you'll see it recently earlier this year. Lent, giving up something for Lent. That's a form of this type of teaching where we're pointing to something external as if God wants you to give up Diet Coke and that's going to make you more impressive to God or make you more spiritual. Those are the kind of false measurements that are going to be out there uh, amongst false teachers. And it's just designed to distract from the truth of God's word and sound doctrine. Again, how is one made godly? Chapter 3, verse 16, God reproduces himself in a human body. It's God manifested in the flesh. That's how he does it. Not through giving up certain things or not getting married or not eating certain things. That's not how it works. And yet many of the false teaching that we see in our day and that we'll continue to see going forward in the future will continue to distract people. They will continue to captivate people's thinking. So the knowledge that we have and believe includes the understanding that God is the creator and that everything he created is good. God created everything for our enjoyment. We should receive his good gifts with joy and thanksgiving. A lack of thankfulness will be a trait of the world in the last days, as it is always when mankind rejects the knowledge of God. You know, that's it. Since we're in near, we're in Timothy, let's go to 2 Timothy 3, 2. And notice that the unthankfulness here. Verse one, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, and then a few more uns. I mean, it just keeps going. You'll see that a good indication of carnality in a believer's life is one who cannot be thankful for the things that God has given him or her. God's good gifts are not to be confused with mankind's abuses of food, such as gluttony and drunkenness, or perversions of marriage, such as fornication, adultery, pornography, or polygamy. These abuses and perversions are harmful and not good. 
You know, some people take it too far. It's like, oh, well, if marriage is good, then God must want me to be intimate with as much as I can since it's such a good thing. That's not what he's saying at all. Or if he's like, oh, God wants me to enjoy food. Well, you know, he doesn't want us to enjoy it to the point where we're gluttons, where we're drunkards. You know, there's, you know, that is not to be confused with the enjoyment of God's good gifts. It's within reason. It's, it provides the enjoyment of God's good gifts. There's some stability to it, not extremes. If I guess I could say it that way. Verse five, for everything created by God is sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer. The word sanctified is in the passive voice in the Greek. Again, showing that God is the actor. He's the one who has set everything he created apart as good. God has determined to set marriage apart as something good for his children. He's the one who's determined to set all foods apart for our good for his children. That's what he's the one that's done that. In fact, in the creation account in Genesis chapter one, God declared everything he made to be good. And by faith through prayer, we agree that God's judgment of what is good is correct. And through prayer and in the intake of the word of God, we can see things the way God sees them. As we continue to absorb and take in the teaching of the word of God, the word of God, even in our own personal study. And as we pray, we can begin to understand how God views these things and not get caught up by these deceptive and damaging false teachers and their demonic doctrines that they, that they teach and preach distracting from what is the true way to live the Christian life and live in such a way that you're enjoying God's good gifts and that you're pleasing God by the way that you live. We're going to move to verse six through 10 now guarding against false teaching. And in verse six, Paul says in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And Paul had left Timothy, remembered in Ephesus, to correct, to instruct, and to exhort. Timothy was to fulfill his calling by pointing out false teaching to the church leaders. The idea of pointing out, the, the word pointing out uh, translated here has the idea of putting something under something as a support or putting something under someone as a support. The idea is if is if you see somebody who's susceptible to falling down, maybe you would point out or you would put a crutch underneath their arms so that they wouldn't fall. And this is the, the ministry of Timothy to the church at Ephesus. This is the ministry of any elder um, in any local church in our day. They are to be pointing these things out to the brethren so that we might be a good servant of Jesus Christ. We're to, where we could see the potential falling of a brother, we're to prop something up underneath them to support them. What's really interesting is the word is used in the middle voice, which indicates that Timothy would benefit from this as well. Not only is he doing it for the brethren, pointing out these things to the brethren, but in, in doing so, he will benefit himself. He'll receive the benefit of that action. Very important here. In 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul told Timothy to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with great patience and instruction. He added this in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4. But you, speaking to Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And all of this encompasses how and why Timothy could be considered a good servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the the word servant that he uses here simply refers to a table waiter. 
somebody who who serves food to people that come into a restaurant and eat. That's what we're talking about here. He's a, a good table waiter. And what do good waiters or waitresses do? Well, they get the food from the kitchen to the table without spilling it. There's other things that go into our mindset of what it makes a good waiter or waitress. But that's the primary job. Get the food from the kitchen to the table without spilling it. And as a pastor and as an elder, Timothy's job and any pastor and elder's job is simply that. Get the the food, the word of God from the source, God himself, and deliver it to other people's table without spilling the food. We're not to change it. We're not to, to add spice, subtract spice. We're just to get it from the chef, God himself, to the table of the brethren. And that's what we're talking about here in terms of Timothy being a good servant, a good table waiter. Notice he says, if you, in verse six, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ and you will be nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. And so he's constantly nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine. So not only did Timothy need to nourish himself for his own encouragement, he needed to remain true to sound doctrine in order to be able to point out the error of false teachers. See, sound doctrine should be a consistent diet for any growing believer, whether they're a pastor, elder, lay person, it doesn't really matter. Every believer needs to be constantly nourished. And so as Timothy is reminding the brethren of these things, he's pointing it out. He's propping up. He needs to be aware even for his own personal life. He needs to be walking with the Lord and being constantly nourished on the words. And as he's doing that, this text says that he will be constantly nourished as he's reminding the brethren of these things as well. It'll be kind of a, he's reminding them, but he's benefiting from hearing himself talk. You know, he's, he's learning those things as he's reminding the brethren as well. Verse seven, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women have nothing to do with means literally to refuse the request to be involved in. This was not merely a suggestion. It was a strong imperative. It wasn't just like, Hey, Timothy, that's kind of a waste of time. Don't, you know, if you, if you don't have, you know, if you're short on time, don't spend any time listening to that. It was like, I don't care what your time looks like, don't do it, right? I don't care if you got a whole day to kill. Have nothing to do with these worldly fables. You know, in 1 Timothy 1, Timothy was to confront false teaching head on. But when it came to these fables, Paul emphatically told Timothy, don't even waste your time contesting them. Don't even waste your time addressing these things. What were these fables? Well, worldly fables refer to fabricated secular stories, that appealed to the curiosity. They just weren't worth discussing. Maybe they were very tantalizing. Maybe they were very interesting. They may be, but he was to avoid them. They're not worth discussing. It's full of speculation. Well, what about this? What if this happened? What if that happened? Just just random speculations that the word of God don't address. And he's not to waste his time with that. You know, the Jews were very big in these days in their own writings where they would they would pump up their heroes, maybe Abraham, and they would make up and fabricate all these heroic things that, that their heroes, Abraham, did. And then they would talk about it. And this might have been something that Paul had in mind with Timothy. You know, there was a obviously a Jewish element to the false teaching in chapter one. And so they may have picked up on some of these worldly fables as well, these, these speculations. And Paul says, 
Don't even try to address them. Just don't even waste your time with them. Have nothing to do with them. And on the other hand, instead of spending your time on this, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. In essence, Paul told Timothy that in contrast to the empty way of life of those who follow the world system, he should press on toward the righteousness which comes from God and is on the basis of faith. Now, Paul was not referring to asceticism or self-effort here. He was not speaking of setting up a workout program as the word discipline might typically convey. As Colossians 2.23 clarifies, self-effort and harsh treatment of the body do not produce godliness. Discipline, by definition, means to train yourself. And it's the idea of training yourself in godliness. Look at verse 7 again. He says, exercise or discipline yourself toward godliness. And and what is godliness again? Go back to chapter 3, verse 16. It's a mystery that's been revealed in the church age that God wants to make men godly by reproducing his life in the body of men. It's so that Jesus might live through us. And so to discipline or train yourself in godliness is not taking up ascetic tendencies, limiting yourself, not getting married, not eating food, not doing this, starting to do that. It has nothing to do with that. It's training yourself to learn and rely upon God's method for making you godly, which is the reproduction of the life of Jesus Christ in and through you. And you know, one of the things we see in the book of Ephesians, which I think is is helpful to understand here, is in verse 18, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with with or by the spirit. I like the translation by that word can mean a a couple of different things, but I like the concept of by, because I, I believe the spirit of God is the filling agent. What is he filling you with? He's filling you with the life of Christ. As you walk by faith, this is how God makes a person godly. And we are to train and discipline our thinking to reject all other forms of false godliness or false efforts to make ourselves godly and train ourselves to rely upon God's method for making us godly, not getting in a hurry, but trusting in God's way to do that. Now, Paul wanted Timothy to pursue godliness through being filled with the word of God, counting on his position in Christ and depending upon the Holy Spirit. And, you know, John 15, 5b says, for without me, you can do nothing. Romans 6, 11 says we are to reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. And that we are to go on presenting our bodies to the Lord, no longer presenting them to the sin nature so that he might use and fill our bodies with the life of Jesus Christ to accomplish things for his good pleasure to free us from sin's power. All of this goes together. And this is a type of discipline or training that we want to engage in as it relates to godliness, not buying into old wives fables or buying into false teaching, but buying into the truth of the word of God and in being in our mind convinced and persuaded that that's the only way not thinking, well, I'll try this God thing. This I'll try God's way for a while, but then I'm going to go back to this because this was kind of working when I, you know, did whatever, stop doing whatever. It's basically taking your rear view mirror off and saying, I'm going to just, I believe and am persuaded that God's way is the only way that can work. And so I'm going to start relying on his method for making me godly, not on every other method that exists on planet earth. Verse eight, Paul says for bodily discipline 
is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and it also holds promise for the life to come. So bodily exercise is only for yourself. The results are temporal, but godliness results in both temporal and eternal blessings. And so God, so Paul uses an illustration of physical bodily training here as a contrast to training toward godliness that he mentions there at the end of verse seven. And so for the present life, you know, when you're godly, when you grow in godliness, it affects every relationship you have. It changes the way you look at life. It changes the way you treat your wife, your husband, your kids, changes the way you serve in the local church. It changes the way you live in your community. Godliness affects everything in this present age. In fact, hold your place there and go to Titus chapter two, Titus chapter two, verse 11 says for the grace of God, that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us. So it's the grace of God. That's teaching us something, teaching us what denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously and godly where in the present age, godliness can have a great impact in your present life. It's not like, well, I'm living godly because I'm, I'm just looking forward to rewards in heaven. No, you can actually benefit from living godly. You can actually experience true joy, true abundant life. When you walk in fellowship with the Lord, um, you can actually enjoy this life much more than you've ever enjoyed it before, but it's also beneficial for the life to come. Godliness also brings eternal rewards. And so we know those, those passages, but first Corinthians three, 11 through 15, let me read that one. First Corinthians three, 11 through 15 for no other foundation Can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ? Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, what are we building with here? Well, we're building with good works. That's what we're building with. The good works that we do are going to be evaluated. And they're going to be evaluated based on not the fact that they're good works, because they're all good works. They're going to be evaluated on the basis of what source did we do those good works from? Did we do it from the source of sin? In other words, did we do something good to be noticed by others with the wrong motives, with the wrong attitudes, or do we do it in reliance upon the Lord? So if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. Of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved so as through fire. So we see that there is benefit of living godly, living in fellowship with the Lord, even for the life to come. It's going to involve some level of eternal reward. And finally, verse 9 it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. And so Paul went out of his way to ensure Timothy that pursuing godliness rather than the things of this world was worth it. Timothy could teach this to others without any reservations. Let's close by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as a closing verse here for this section. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 16 through 18. And this encouragement that living godly in this world is worth it. It's worth it. Verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment 
is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Just an encouragement there to to end the night that living godly, living in fellowship with the Lord, living for, in a sense, living for the Lord Jesus with him in mind as we live our life, it's always going to be worth it. There may be light affliction now, there may be things that are difficult now, but it's always going to be worth it. Not only in this life, so that you can experience abundant life, but also in the life to come. All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for the study tonight. Thank you for your word, which is life-giving. And thank you for your son who died to give us life. And uh, Lord, we we desire to, to just walk and live in sound doctrine. We want to become better students of your word so that we can understand it for ourselves. that we, we learn how to compare scripture with scripture, that we can recognize error and false teaching when we see it, that we can be, that we would not, as, as Paul writes, that we would not be removed from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. So many times we overcomplicate things. We, we try to, we get too smart for our own good, so to speak. And so we want to remain simple minded and in, in laser narrow focused on the Lord and, uh, the Lord Jesus. And so, uh, we pray this this week and it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.